Good morning. My name is Sarah Longshore, and this morning's scripture reading, one moment, please. Um, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 44. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and all the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of the scriptures. Yeah, when you don't do this all the time, you get out of practice of how things go. So I'd rather sit where you guys are sitting. So, hey, it's great to be here this morning. I'm so glad that Nick can have uh, some time to go off with family and spend time with family. And I'm very honored that he asked me to fill in for him. If I've not met you today, or have never met you before here and you're new to the church. I'm Randy Rush. I'm the executive director of the Courage Center. Uh, I used to be a pastor, so I, I, I promise you this isn't my first time doing this. So um, uh, we'll, we'll go from there. But it is an honor to be here. We've got a lot to do today. Uh, Nick called me and he said, hey, can you do a date uh, in November? And I said, yeah, I can. And we looked at a couple of dates, and, and the day was, was the one I said, well, that's the day that really works. He said, well, you got to do the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Oh, and by the way, it's Communion Sunday, too. So let me see. we got to get people dead, raised, and eternal life, and do communion in about 30 minutes. Buckle up, buttercup. It's going to be a fast ride, okay? <laughs> All right. We've been talking about, as we've been doing this series, The Creed, right, that it's not this kind of litmus test of what it takes to be a member here at Emmaus. First off, we don't have members here at Emmaus, so it's not a big deal. And instead of creed, like these are the things that you have to believe, the idea it comes from the Latin word credo is, this is the guiding principles of how I live my life. The guiding principles of what shapes and how I live my life. That makes a big difference, doesn't it? Now, if you went to church in the 90s and you were in youth group, who, who, did anybody go to church in the 90s? I think mean, we got a lot of young crowd. Anybody in youth group in the 90s at a church? Do anybody know who Rich Mullins is? Yes. Rich Mullins wrote a song called Creed, and it was all about the Apostles' Creed. We played it the very first Sunday here as we started this series. And there's a line in that song where it says, I believe what I believe, and it makes me who I am. I did not make it. It is making me. It is making me. The things we say that we believe about the creed, this life of Jesus, this way of plugging into his way of doing life and ministry and relationship to God should be changing us and making us who we are. It's not just things we 
spout out to say like some historical confession of things that happened long, long ago. No, it's real life today. And it has an impact in how we live our life today. It should be shaping us into who we are. Amen? Let's stand up and say that Apostles' Creed today. And as you say it, I want you to think about how is it shaping your life? How is it making you into who you are today? All right, let's start. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Old country preacher was uh, preaching one time on sin in the afterlife. I know you're surprised by that. And he asked the congregation, who wants to go to heaven tonight? And everybody in the congregation raised their hand except one little boy up in the balcony. He didn't raise his hand. So the minister said again, who wants to go to heaven tonight? And everybody in the congregation raised their hand except that one little boy in the balcony. And the preacher stopped, and he looked at him, and he pointed him out, and he said, Son, don't you want to go to heaven? And the little boy said, Well, of course I do, but I thought you was getting a load up tonight. <laughs> so all of us one day want to enter into the presence of the Lord, but, you know, we're not in a hurry, right? We're not in fast. John Wayne was being interviewed by Barbara Walters one time, and he said, I see these movies of me in the 40s, and then I look in the mirror, and I see this 70-something-year-old man, and I'm like, where did that guy come from? He said, but I still want to be here as long as I can. So before we can talk about the resurrection of the body and the life to everlasting, we've got to say a few things just real quickly about death. Death's not a punishment for Christians. Paul says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, death is the final outcome of living in a fallen world. We underestimate sometimes when the fall occurred how it infected everything. Paul says later, all of creation groans and wants to be redeemed. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 26, then comes the end and when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's the last thing that has to be destroyed so that the fallen creation can be renewed and transformed. What happens to us when we die? Now, uh, my small group here, we had a great argument one night. Sometimes I like to poke people. You notice the first person that laughed was my wife when I said that. We were talking about, you know, the soul, and I said, you know, there is no soul. And everybody's like, what? They're all freaking out. Look, we are not, you know, people have different ideas of what we're made up of, but what we are made up is flesh, body, right, and spirit. And that makes up us as a whole. 
We don't have this disembodied eternal soul that's going to go somewhere one day forever and ever and float in the skies. That's not the promise and the hope of Christianity. But we do know that there's some other essence to us than just our physical body. And when we die, that essence, that spirit, or the scripture sometimes, Chris, says soul. <laughs> Those are interchangeable, spirit and soul. That essence, that spirit goes somewhere else. And scripture backs this up when we die. Jesus told a thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, even though we know that both of them physically died that day. When Luke records the words of Stephen in the book of Acts, when he's being stoned to death, he says, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The apostle Paul said in his letter to the church at Philippi, my desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And he wrote the church in Corinth in the second Corinthian letter. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, Rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we die, the picture we have from the New Testament is that for those of us who are in Christ, when we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? Some people call it sleep. The Bible calls it sleep. There are lots of instances where there's a, we use the euphemism of sleep for death. Well, what does that sleep look like? I wish I had the answer to that. I really don't. There's not a lot said about it. But most theologians call this the intermediate stage. Because we know that the hope and the promise is resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But what happens between the day that I die and the day that I'm resurrected? N.T. Wright, the former Archbishop of Canterbury in England, says sleep here means the body is asleep in the sense that it's dead, while the real person, however, we want to describe him or her, continues. The state is not the final destiny for which Christian and dead are bound, which we know that's the bodily resurrection, but it is a state in which the dead are held firmly within the conscience love of God and the conscience presence of Jesus Christ while we wait the day of resurrection. I like this one. Anybody remember, just really show you how old people are. Anybody ever go to a drive-in theater? Man, I love the drive-in. My mom would pop popcorn at home, put it in a big old paper, you know, not Bilo bag or Kroger bag or Publix bag, a community cash bag. We'll see how old you really are if you remember community cash. And she'd pop it at home, and then she'd have little bags for us to pass around. We'd go to the drive-thru. Reverend Elizabeth Eaton, who is the presiding bishop over the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, said this. She said, I think of it this way. When I was a little girl, my parents would take my brothers and me to the drive-in movies. We would fall asleep in the back seat of the car. And when we got home, our parents would carry us up to bed. When we woke up, we were safe in our own beds. We had no awareness of how long we had been asleep nor how we had arrived, but we knew we were home. How's that sound? Does that give you fear of death? No. I can't explain it all, but I do know this. The promise is, as those of us who are in Christ, when we leave this earthly place and we leave these earthly bodies prior to being resurrected, we're with the Lord. We're in a safe place, a warm place, a place where we know him and he knows us. 
And we're, we're going to be there until the resurrection comes. Does that change the way that you live your life? It should. Does it change how you look at what happens next for us? It should. It should impact how we look at the world, how we live our life, not in fear, but in hope. It even should change how we act. Look, we all get sad when we lose loved ones. That's normal. I miss some of the folks that have been integral to my life and part make of me who I am. But I also have a hope that I will see them again. I have a hope that this is not all there is. I have a hope that there's more than this. So what happens? All right, now I've got you dead. <laughs> got you dead. The promise of the creed is the resurrection of the body. It's that we are not eternally floating around in a spirit world. A disembodied soul is not our hope. Instead, we are resurrected just how Jesus is. And when Sarah, who I almost didn't let come up and read the scripture, read it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so, it will, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It's raised as a spiritual body. What does he mean by that? What does Paul mean by that? Excuse me. One of the first heresies that the Christian church had to fight against was the idea of Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis. And it was this group of people that believed that you had to have a special knowledge to be part of the kingdom of God, to connect with God, right? And they, everything to them was about wisdom, knowledge, and it was all on a spiritual level. To them, the body didn't mean anything. Matter of fact, that you could go out and do anything. You could have you know, go to the temple prostitute and have these carnal lust desires, all these things, and give in to those. You know, the body didn't mean anything. You could abuse it. You could do anything because the body wasn't what was important. Spirituality what was important. They didn't believe that the Old Testament God could be the same as the New Testament Father of Jesus. They had all of these things. And much of the uh, New Testament writings, if you go and study them, it's really Paul and John really in a lot of ways trying to combat this early form of Gnosticism and one of the things that we say today is that we have theologians that make the same argument. They argue that when Paul talks about the resurrection body, what he's talking about is a spiritual body. That he's not mean a non-material body, not a physical body like we have today. It's some kind of spirit essence. And they argue really that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It was a spiritual awakening and, and, and rising that he did. And, you know, this is really common. One of my favorite professors at USC... Um, a New Testament professor. Uh, he and I were as far, far apart theologically sometimes as you could possibly be, but a, a, a gentleman, a kind man, he treated me well. He gave me great advice. We would sit in his office and talk theology. I loved him. He was great. He passionately believed this and said, Randy, I don't need all of this resurrection and all of these, you know, he, he didn't believe that, you know, the blood on the cross and I'm above all that. I've evolved beyond that. And a lot of people you know, want to believe that. And, and there's something about that. It would be appealing, right? That we don't have to talk about how a physical body was resurrected and brought back from the dead. We wouldn't even have to talk about how our own bodies are going to be resurrected, even after they've been in the ground and decayed thousands and thousands of years, because that's hard for the mind to understand. If we kept it at this spiritual level, that'd be a much easier thing for the church to sell, wouldn't it? 
It would be. So is that what Paul is talking about here? Is that what Paul is saying when he says a spiritual body? No. The answer to that is no. Paul was a Pharisee. And one of the core doctrines of the Pharisees was they were an early Jewish sect. So was the Sadducees. The Sadducees ran the temple. The Pharisees were more the lay preachers and out in the community, right? The Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. Paul was a Pharisee. They believed that's what it always implies. If something is resurrected, something is dead and brought back to life. Something is resuscitated. Something is brought back. That was what the Greek word that they talked about, you, how they used, that's what it implies. Jesus believed in the idea of a resurrection. He even caused a few himself in addition to his own body being resurrected. So when Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians a spiritual body, he's talking about that versus a physical body. Are right, you ready for your Greek lesson today? Greek lesson is this. Paul says the physical body is a, let me get it right is a sukion soma. A spiritual body is a pneumaticon soma. And what do you mean? What, why is that important? Because everywhere in Greek where we see that I-K-O-N ending, it's not talking about how the body is powered, what it's talking about. It's, it's not talking about the quality. It's talking about how it's empowered. I got that backwards. What do you mean? Oh, Randy, you got me so confused now. What do these phrases really mean? A, psyche, a sukion body is a body that's powered by life breath. Life breath that animates and brings everything to life in this world. In the Genesis story, God breathed the breath into Adam. That is life breath. That's sukion soma. Paul is talking about pneumaticon soma, spiritual enabling, spiritual power, spiritual breathed. So when we are resurrected, Paul says when the body is resurrected, it's not brought back by life breath. It's not brought back by the same breath that makes everything alive. It's brought back by the breath of the Holy Spirit. You don't have the same body when you come back. You don't have the same body when you're resurrected as what we experience today. No, we will have a body that is immune to disease, decay, and death. It'll be a physical body that's immune to suffering, sin, and sorrow. It will be a physical body. It will be immortal. It will be imperishable. It will be powerful, and it will be glorious. But what he says, it will be totally empowered by the Spirit. That's what he means by a spiritual body. Not a body made out of spirit, but a body that is empowered, enabled, and enlivened by the Spirit. Tim Keller says this. He said, the resurrection of the body means we don't merely receive a consolation prize for the life we've lost, but we get a restoration prize of the life we've always dreamed about and longed in our heart. We know decay, disease, sin, suffering. We know that this is not what we want. We know that this is something that comes as a result of the fall. Deep in our heart and our deepest longing, we want something different and better. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's the promise of the resurrected body that just has Jesus laid in the ground and came out and overcame sin and death, so shall we. And that promise is available to each and every one of us. All right, Randy, when do we receive our resurrected bodies? What does that look like? 
Y'all ever see the show? There's a, there was a show on True TV a few years ago called Adam Ruins Everything. Anybody remember that show? It was great. He'd take these widely held beliefs and things, and he'd kind of pull them apart. There's a really funny one about jaywalking. You'll actually see how it was really the car industry that created the laws about that because people were in the early 1900s were like, wait, these big, huge metal things are running in the streets, and everybody walks in the streets. The streets are for everybody. And then a couple of people got killed, and people were saying, hey, we ought to outlaw these things. They're big death, 2,000-pound death traps. And the automobile industry said, whoa, wait, 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 we can't do that. Now, you know, everybody would think, well, jaywalking's always been against law. Mm, no, it hadn't. So I'm about maybe to ruin something for some of you guys here today, okay? Anybody grow up in a church that taught the rapture? Boy, that's some bad theology. Let me tell you where the rapture comes from and why, why we don't believe that, why I don't believe that. Now, can you believe the rapture and be a member of this church? Yes, you can, because we don't have members. <laughs> I know this will be a little unsettling for some people. 1820s, but let me tell you this before we get started. For the first 1,800 years of the church, there was no such thing as a rapture. No theology of the rapture. No one believed that. The Catholic Church didn't believe that. The Eastern Orthodox Church didn't believe that. No one did. 1820s revival in Scotland. A young girl named MacDonald, good Scottish name, has a vision as part of the revival, and she sees the church taken up in the air based on the First Thessalonians passage, and she sees the church raptured out before the tribulation. Now, it would have probably stayed there, but there was a man named Darby, a Reverend Darby, who heard about her vision, and he was kind of enamored with it, and he took it, and he ran with it. Now, you know, over in Scotland, wouldn't have made a big much of a deal. It had been a small sect within Christianity, and there's bunches of them, believe all kinds of things. But Darby decides he's going to come to the United States. And as he comes to the United States, he founds the Plymouth Brethren Church, and he meets a man named D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody hears this, and he likes it, and he believes it. And he takes off with it, and he founds the Moody Bible Institute. He was a prolific writer. He wrote bunches of, of tracts, bunches of things during the 1800s, and there's a lot of a, you know, apocalyptic uh, theology that's going on in the 1800s. And a lot of people wanted to think that, man, we could just you know, exit and evacuate and skip all that. So it was very appealing to people, especially when you have a civil war that kills you know, six, 700,000 people, all the unrest that has to go on with that. It's a dark time. So the rapture theology starts to grow. Moody really becomes really the Billy Graham of his day. He was prolific in speaking and writing. And eventually, you know, it was really a lay movement. And finally, someone says, we need some good academic backing of this theology. And so Dallas Theological Seminary was started down in Dallas, which is a great school, great people. If you like Chuck Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll is a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate. Tony Evans is a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate. Priscilla Evans, his daughter, all those things. And they really put forth this idea of the rapture. What does the rapture mean? The rapture means that the church will be taken up and they'll be caught up in the air with Jesus and they're all going to go back to heaven and everybody else is going to have to stay here and suffer until Jesus comes back the third time. Well, you know, in the, in the Wesleyan church, in the Methodist church, we have a way of doing theology. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. We look at scripture, we look at reason, we look at experience, and we look at tradition. 
And we take all of those things when we look at a, a, a doctrine or a theology. By almost every one of those, the rapture theology fails. If you look at Matthew 24, which is one of the first places where you hear this, right? One will be taken, one will be left behind. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left behind. If you look immediately prior to that, Jesus is talking about the flood. Who were the righteous in the flood? The people that were taken or the people that were left behind? The people that were taken, right? The ones that were left behind experienced the flood and the judgment. Then we look at 1 Thessalonians, which is really the linchpin of how this theology comes about. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring Jesus, those who have fallen asleep, in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What's Paul writing about here? Paul's trying to answer the questions of the people at the church in Thessalonica that, hey, what happens to the people who've already died when the Lord comes back? Or did they miss it? The early church thought that Jesus was coming soon, very soon. Every generation thinks Jesus is coming soon, very soon. Do you have people and friends now? They look at politics. They look at what's going on in the world. They look all this stuff in Israel, man. Folks love that stuff. They're all trying to get their big maps out and charts so that we can chart along with the book of Revelation. It's really not meant to be read that way, but a lot of people try to do that. But I have a lot of friends and family. Lord, as you think this is it, Randy, is Lord coming back? We're supposed to always feel like the Lord's presence and return is soon in coming. That's the way we're supposed to live our life. And so what the church at Thessalonica was saying, hey, these folks who have passed on when the Lord comes back, have they missed it? And Paul's saying, no. Matter of fact, the dead in Christ, when Jesus returns, will be raised and caught up in the air with him. To do what? All of this is an entrance liturgy for a king returning to a city. Anybody ever watch when Air Force One lands in another country? What happens? Do they just leave Joe Biden or Obama or George Bush, any of those people, do they just leave them sitting there? No. A greeting party goes out, meets them at the airport. There's pomp, there's circumstance. A military band plays, they hug each other, they do all these things. That's how you greet leaders. Anybody during the time of Jesus that lived in a walled city, they had a watchman high up in a tower. When they saw the king approaching, and they heard, saw his party coming, and they heard his trumpet blow, the leaders of the city would go out and they would greet the king and come back into the city and have a celebration. Everybody who read these words in the first century would have realized that. But 1,800 years later, 
when these folks were trying to understand and make sense of the world and they read this, they thought, oh, Christians must be going to be taken out. Let me tell you something. Our hope and our promise is not somewhere up in the air. You know where we're going to be? You know what heaven is? It's right here. This earth, this world is going to be changed, transformed, renewed, a new creation. Not someplace floating around in the sky someplace. It's right here. So when those folks who are raised, who are dead in Christ are raised, where do they come? Right back here with Jesus. With Jesus. Now, I know some of you are going, I sat in churches all my life, and all I wanted to make sure was I didn't get left behind. Let me tell you why that is bad theology. Hold on one second. Anybody travel and they, they have to drive rental cars? Who washes a rental car before you take it back? Right, you don't. I've even tossed stuff in the back and go, eh, don't worry about it, it's a rental car. You want to get that cup? Nah, it's a rental car. This kind of evacuation and exit theology gives this idea that this world and our bodies and none of this stuff matters. Hey, I know you don't have anything to eat. Let me get you to say this prayer real quick so you won't be left behind. I know you don't have a home to live in, and I know all these things like that. And I know that's important, but you got to say this prayer real quick because I don't want you to get left behind. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but there are a lot of folks who are so concerned about making sure that you say the prayer, that you're whatever. And I know some of them are very sincere. i got family members like that. But it breeds this rental car theology that this earth and this world and our bodies don't matter if you grew up on southern gospel how many songs this old house right how many we're just passing through none of this is going to matter but that's not biblical the biblical promise is that this earth is not what god originally intended it to be but it's going to be it's going to be transformed it's going to be renewed it's going to be a new creation and so will we right here right here now, please, don't go home at Thanksgiving and blow up Uncle John. <laughs> hey, we had this guest guy come in at our church, and he told us the rapture was a bunch of mm, hooey theology. Look, I sat in it. Bunches of us have, right? And it's, made, it's an attempt made by good people to understand how the world works. Can you be a Christian and believe that? Absolutely you can. Absolutely but I want you to have right theology, okay? So what happens? All right, Randy, we got to go fast. Okay. The life everlasting. Whew. I got two minutes to talk about life everlasting. <laughs> when we're reunited with Jesus in the air, we come back here. This earth is renewed. This earth is transformed we are transformed our bodies are transformed it's clear that we enter the full enjoyment and life in the presence of God forever it's also clear that guess what this idea that we're going to float around and play a harp all our life that's not true either right there's plenty of references to show us we'll be busy we'll have work to do when God first created the, the Genesis story 
in the Genesis creation story, Adam's told what? Tend the garden, work in the garden, be productive, have a purpose in life. But because of the fall, work becomes cursed. Work becomes a burden. Anybody working today, a job will tell you. Some days it's a burden. Some days dealing with other people is a burden and a curse. You know, some days we lose our joy if we're not doing what we want to do. The promise of life everlasting is not that we're going to lay around and be unproductive and be floating around with the angel wings and playing the harp for whatever. It's that the things that you do are a joy. They're not accursed. They're not a labor. They're not frustrating. They're not full of tension and stress and anxiety. They are a joy. What about the people that we know today? Will we know them in the life everlasting? D.A. Criswell, who founded Criswell Christian College, said, hey, until that day, do you really ever know them? Because now you'll know them fully and who they originally God intended them to be. I don't have all the answers for that. To be honest, really, there's not a lot, of, there's not a lot in the Bible that talks about it. There's really not a lot that talks about it. But I will tell you this. How do you understand? How do you understand eternity? Vance Havener, the Southern Baptist evangelist from North Carolina, said one time, he said, you know, I'm kind of glad that God didn't give us all the details about life everlasting, the life uh, eternal in heaven. He said, because it kind of reminds me of a boy that, you know, in a, in a poor home in North Carolina, he has to eat a bowl of spinach, but his mama puts a chocolate cake down at the end of the table. Now, his eyes, the whole time he's supposed to be eating that bowl of spinach, is on that chocolate cake. If God had told us everything about what the life to be would, is like, we'd have a hard time eating this spinach here on earth, waiting for that chocolate cake, wouldn't we? But guys, I got news for you. Chocolate cake is coming. Right? Well, Randy, what's eternity like? Tim Keller said, if you took a steel ball that was 25,000 miles around, that's what the earth is. And every million years, a sparrow came, lit down on that steel ball, and just sharpened its beak and didn't come back for another million years. When that steel ball, 25,000 miles around the size of the earth, gets eroded down to a BB, eternity will just have begun. 